Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Queer Quadrant, a podcast where we, two bisexual filmmakers, examine cinema in all its cultural contexts and explore why your favorite four-quadrant blockbuster is maybe not as straight as you think it is. I've written a letter to Daddy. His address is heaven above. Are you Cockney in this scenario? The sub's anthem. Oh no, fuck. Travis! Daddy, we miss you. And wish you were here. No, and we. Fuck. And wish you were here with us to love. Are you done? Was that good? It was so good. How do we, how do we feel about that? Do we think everyone immediately turned off their the podcast? We're going to have to like lower your audio. Like, oh, no. So much. Oh, that's uh, it's going to be uh, negative 500 decibels. Mm-hmm. Thank- <laughs> it sounds like I'm under the ocean. Yes. yes. Uh, thank you, Travis. I will never listen to that song the same way yeah, again. True. Yeah, tra- <laughs> you said it and I immediately was like, can't react. Got to keep going. I have ha- half a chorus to get through. I tried so hard to throw you off. I tried so hard. Look, when I'm in my baby Jane zone, you can't get me out. I was going to say, you should know better than try to dissuade Jordan from doing a bit <laughs> a, in any way, bit. shape, or form. Of course. What was I thinking? I don't know. What? Okay. Does she not sing it in some sort of like accent? No. She does it? So, so is it just like a really high voice? I think she sort of has that like polished transatlantic child star business. That's, yeah, it. that's what I'm getting from it. Yeah. But when Betty Davis does it, it's like... If she's it not just you she, wait. She's it's just not a cockney child. It, are you, you know, if you noticed, I cut myself off halfway through the song, so it's like there is half a song left. I wonder if that will come into play at some point during the rest of this podcast. I actually oh, probably no. wouldn't have like thought about that, but now of course it's hanging over me. Yes. Like a dark. You know, black. like instead of a stamp, she put kisses. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's yeah. kind of a fucking tragic uh, song. It's it terrifying. Really is. And like her dad is behind her playing the piano, being like, yep, yes. I'll be dead soon, but she's singing about it, so it's fine. Hey folks, go downstairs and get your own baby Jane doll, a doll of my daughter. Don't you want one? Don't you want to play with my daughter? Isn't this cool? Yeah. I mean, look, it's a very effectively upsetting and creepy opening. You think this movie's creepy? Yeah, I think this movie is a little Do creepy. you not? I, this was just like my normal life. I don't know. I, same vibes. I just, you know, I felt very akin to Baby Jane. You know, we've gone through our experiences together. Honestly, okay. Blanche Brooke, I'm a, a little worried for you. I think you, you might want to take a few yeah. steps apart right now. <laughs> I've written a letter Stop, to Brooke. Please. Okay. But all, all of us here are part of podcasting duos. Yes. Which of us is the Blanche and which of us is the baby Jane? Oh, my God. Which are you? I mean, I guess I'm Blanche, probably. You can be Jane if you want. I don't care. I have zero emotional connection to either. This is... I don't even know... I don't even know how to, how to categorize this properly because one of them is insane and one of them is also kind of tragic. Awful. Both of them. Not great. <laughs> Yeah, I it's guess. It's like Grey Garden's energy, you know? Sure. <laughs> okay. I'll I'll be Baby Jane. Okay. You can be Blanche. Yeah. So you'll put some weights in your pockets, you know, while I'm okay, dragging but, but, you. But that's, that's like a Joan Crawford, uh, yes, Betty yes, Davis yes. situation okay, as fine. opposed to a Baby Jane fine. Blanche situation. We'll go, oh, fine. We'll go like the actress, we'll go like the actresses portraying the characters. Okay. That, see, that's completely okay, different. There's the new question. Who do you feel like you are? Okay. I think that I am, unfortunately, probably Joan Crawford in your Yeah, Davis. I think between the two of you, that fits. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm okay with between... that. I like 
I like the fact that you're saying that I have nice big eyes and, and also, that I'm a cool New England gal. It's like, yeah, like you're the talent, but I am, the, I am the, the brains. No. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're the talent, but I'm like the, the beauty, the aesthetic. Mm, I like that. Yeah. You have a very distinguished like jawline because mm-hmm. you removed molars from your mouth so That's that you have your own fucking like, nuts. Inner cheeks. All okay. right. Look, sorry. <laughs> All right. Do we, just so you can answer. Are you the See, Betty this is the Davis's thing. I don't Jane? know if I'm the Jane or if I'm the Blanche, but going through you guys, I'm definitely the Brooke. So therefore, that makes me the Blanche. Yes. Got it. Okay. And see, every podcast has like the, the <laughs> person that Jordan? organizes and then the person that tries to throw the organizer off the rails. And uh, Travis, yep. you and I are both the organizers. Yep. So. <laughs> I've written a letter to Daddy. Are you done? Yeah. Okay. Um, if- I've queered a quadrant this podcast Mm -hmm. if you haven't guessed yet today we're talking about whatever happened to baby jane the 1962 classic what happened to her um we're gonna find out whatever happened to her or whatever happened to her it's two words so i assume it's like whatever Whatever. yeah also i don't think whatever was like (sighs) Whatever. Whatever, dude. Who cares? <laughs> Whatever happened to Baby I think Jane? you guys are forgetting the seminal remake on Drag Race. What happened to Baby JJ? Oh, oh yes. Oh, See, did not know. We're going to talk about how this is great. Like, yes. baked, uh, I don't know, like the queer community is into this movie. How baked everyone on set was? <laughs> Probably. Probably. It was a little know. early for, a little early for everyone. Uh, everyone was just smoking. Chain smoking, like, yes. like nobody's yeah, that's business. Really so it. there was just a haze going around set. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Special okay. effects had to do nothing. They did not use a fog machine. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> just, no. Just the grips. The grip department alone. The grips in the back, yeah. We're good. <laughs> I mean, that still happens today. That's that's how they, you know, they just call the grips and they're like, all right, we need some fog over there. Can you guys go do your thing? See, you joke, but that's definitely happened no, on the oh, least one uh, set. Yes, that happened that at I have been multiple on. Emerson sets, yeah. Yeah, anyway. I seriously had a shot of a teacup that we were trying to get so badly steaming and we could not get it until one of the grips just pulled out a cigarette and blew into the teacup just and the steam that like looked like it coming right off of the teacup was perfect for the shot we had spent like 20 minutes trying to get this teacup steaming and it was just a cigarette that ended up doing it that's iconic sometimes uh what is it modern problems require ancient solutions Mm. as in a cigarette um anyway hi i'm brooke solomon jordan Baby Jane Gustafson. Very nice. And joining us today is Travis Ryans of Rainbow Road, friend of the pod, fan of this movie. Thank you for your impeccable taste in selecting this title. And thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Uh, it's a wild one. It's incredible. Yo. My God. It's so good. Yeah. Can you believe that Robert Aldrich was not considered an auteur during his career, but no. made this thing? Well, I yeah, mean, really. The man goes on to make Longest Yard, which I wanted to talk about because The Longest Yard then got remade, but like that's like kind of an iconic movie is it about baseball no it's like uh prison football <laughs> oh see i was glad i was like that sounds like a sports why would you movie? measure yards in baseball i'm like I, yeah. even i know that <laughs> wow wow listen thank you travis i collect my gay card in some very specific ways and not knowing about <laughs> sports is one of them i also can't drive and i like iced coffee so it's kind of like a triple threat <laughs> you know Musical theater kids, watch out. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, No, shocking. But, I mean, look, the man delivered this, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. He Mm -hmm. has, like, a very specific, I think, sensibility of 
uh, dark, gross movies that make you feel icky and uncomfortable that have an inherent camp to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it is interesting that a lot of these early movies that are sort of campy, as we've discussed a Betty Jane, or Betty Jane, wow, a Betty <laughs> Davis movie Whatever before. Whatever happened to Betty Jane? <laughs> Whatever. So All About Eve, as we discussed before. Yes. But these queer movies that become like become queer classics or like, you know, taken by the queer community as like iconic movies are often directed by straight men, which I just find so fascinating because these men are like, I'm making this serious movie or like they know that they're making like a horror picture or whatever, but by doing so, they're taking it so seriously. They don't recognize the inherent camp to it, which I love. This is something that I would love to talk about just like right off the bat, because it is like a very interesting sub genre of particularly like Hollywood classics is like, Mm -hmm. you know, diva dramas that have been reclaimed by the queer community and like why what does that like what is the x factor um and jordan and i neither of us are really like classic hollywood aficionados and also neither of us are really into sort of like that specific or i guess like you're making a lot of up. broad statements for me right now. I don't think either <laughs> of us came up in that like a queer sort of like. Oh, no, camp. no, 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 no. Like, but I did like a lot of classic Hollywood movies. Yes. But I feel like this is, I don't know. This is like a perspective that we, that the two of us don't get to talk about that frequently because we have more of like, I, you know, our expertise comes from more modern movies and more like modern, like queer reclamations like I don't I didn't know that much about like what makes a queer classic why is all about Eve like so popular with the queer community or whatever happened to baby Jane shit like that um so Travis I was wondering if you could like shed a spotlight on like what I don't know basically like how these movies came to have the cultural impact that they do um I think it depends a lot on each film but one of the biggest things is that it is older women claiming their place in Hollywood, saying that we will not be forgotten, we will not be cast aside, we are great performers, and God damn it, you will remember us. Um, Because, like, this was... As much as it was Aldrich's project, it was also Joan Crawford pushing hard for it to say that, you know, I want to have another film, my career is not over. Yeah. Um, And getting Betty Davis on board and things like that. And then I think it's also recontextualized by the feud that happened afterwards. Oh, for Um, sure. That is what Simply iconic feud. Yeah, that has made this so memorable for so long because of everything that surrounds it. And I think as the queer community, like, we are people who are present in the art spaces, but yet are still kind of marginalized within them. Uh, And I feel like that can be translated a lot to older female actresses who are marginalized by the industry, are, you know, used up and spit out. Uh, And I feel like we feel a certain kinship to that. If that makes sense. Yeah. There's like an outsider art element to it where it's like about these like people who aren't accepted and there's like a tragedy to that. But like with the queer community, a lot of it like turns into melodrama because of like how dramatic and like self-serious the women on screen take it. And so like there's that obviously like inherent camp to the way that they're delivering their lines that like makes it attractive to the queer community because it's both flamboyant and also earnest in delivering on these themes that like resonate with us even if it's like about like you know two women trying to kill each other there are still (laughs) stuff within there that we love like who doesn't love watching like two aging women like duel it out on screen like that's iconic Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely 
most some mo, many of these actresses were so like specific too in the kinds of roles that they played and like the types of performances. I mean, you think about like all of the incredible cues that are so specifically Betty Davis. And like I know that like, you know, in the the beginnings of sort of like the drag scene, a lot of these actresses were common sort of like inspirations for mm-hmm. like the queer community to take and to look at. And like at you know, at the time that this was made, the Hayes Code was still like hovering over Hollywood, which we've talked about yeah. before in the Rebecca episode and a little bit I think in the All About Eve episode too. Um but like there's still an air of like this is taboo what i mean even the term friends of dorothy right friends of dorothy being referring to judy garland playing her in wizard of oz it was your way of coding that queer relationship and that queer sensibility yeah it's it's really like fascinating to look at like i mean we a common theme that we say on the podcast is that like gay people have always been there like whether you believe that they were there or not like we're here we're queer like we've been you there. should have gotten used to it by now exactly like for in every era so like it's all about just like looking between the lines and like finding where these people like left their mark that's the whole whole point of what we like to talk about um and like whatever happened to baby jane is one of the best examples of that this is like a a sort I'll of say like, like the example yeah, yeah like a a must-see queer mm-hmm. music. i mean I knew about this movie, as we mentioned off mic before, like I knew about this movie and like the drama between Betty and Joan without having ever actually seen the movie. Like I remember like in college, like staying up on my phone and like scrolling through the Wikipedia of like this movie and being like, so like, why is this like important? You know what I mean? Like, cause I think that this is codified, like, as you were mentioning, like on RuPaul and stuff like that, like this is sort of those movies that like people who are in the queer community view as something that is like a must see. It's a rite of passage. Right. It's required reading in the queer community. Right. Right. Which I think is a fascinating thing in of itself is like, are these things that are viewed as required readings necessarily going to stick around as queerness itself, you know, continues to grow and change and like representation in mainstream media becomes hopefully better you know, and like whether or not these will stick around. But like, I mean, I hope they do because I love this movie, but I just think it's a fascinating thing that exists, like how sort of caked into queer, like the queer, you know what I mean? Like how I'm saying, it's like, yeah, like uh, people are like, you have to sort of see this movie to like understand, like it's like one of those things that's like constantly playing at queer film festivals or is constantly like, you know what I mean? In conversation or being parodied, you know? Yeah, I think also what's interesting about it is when you look far enough back and you see all of this sort of queer coding, this uh, this camp, this stuff like this, it's not overt queerness, which yeah, actually makes it sure. more accessible, if that makes sense. Because if you get into like Rocky Horror, for instance, Rocky Horror is much more overt, uh, overt about its queerness. And it's now because it it was overt about queerness of the time of the eighties. Now we're looking at the use of the word transsexual in that song. And we're like, Ooh, right. That doesn't really quite read as well as it would have back in the eighties. Right. And we, because our ideas of queerness have evolved. So whatever media we make is always going to be of its time. And our views on queerness are going to change as time progresses. So when it's this more symbolic idea of queerness that can't outright state itself, I actually think it will endure as a classic because you're able to sort of skirt around that a little bit. Yeah, mm. it's more lasting in that way because you'll you'll you know you'll be seeing like the same themes 
over mm-hmm. and over again. Sunset Boulevard, you know what I mean? Like all about Eve as like these these movies. I like the I jotted down divas, like Valley of the like, Dolls, you know, these Trinity. movies that are like classics both like for the queer community and not you know like everyone knows about these movies but it's just like how you're viewing them and like what context are you bringing in to view them which i think Mm -hmm. is so interesting and like the movies that we grew up on you know were so different than like other people but like i don't know it's just it's just a very (laughs) fascinating thing and like to revisit this movie especially having not watched it until you know like this week but having known about it and now like coming into it actually like being out versus just like understanding this movie when I wasn't out I just think is a very different experience you Mm -hmm. know yeah I mean we're both whatever happened to baby Jane virgins um we were both all about Eve virgins too Um, really yeah before the pod no because it's like we I I feel like they're there and it's like what you were saying about like you know the modern definition of queerness like evolving and changing to me it's like these are films that like if you are coming to terms with your identity like specifically as maybe like a gay man it's something that you like go through the handbook and like try and <laughs> try and take off the boxes or you're like oh my gosh there's so much conversation around these pieces like I need to see it but like if you're in a different sector of the community, there's not as much overlap, which is yeah. good in a way because it means that like the LGBTQ plus community is like expanding and like getting its own facets. And like, you know, we're even obviously seeing stuff that's like, well, these are like, you know, trans classics that even though you might not think of it, like these are like, um, you know, Little Mermaid is yeah. a trans classic. I stand by that. Yeah. Oh, oh sure. completely. I, yeah. Like these are bisexual classics, like, you yeah. know, sort of like modern stuff that's coming up. That's like influencing like different parts of the community or like, you know, lesbians have like a whole sector of like, oh, these are films that awakened me that are like a totally different subsect than like mm-hmm. other people. So it's also like the movies your parents show you. It's like I was really into growing up like Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and then like a skip and a jump to like certain 40s movies. But then like my parents showed me like a lot of 60s classics and like a lot of like 70s movies, some movies that they grew up with. So like a lot of Blake Edwards or like things like that. Or like I, you know, we'll see like a Betty Davis here or there or a Judy Garland here or there. But it was much more like Catherine Hepburn ones or Jimmy Stewart or like Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, like those like I had more specific stars that like we would track that my parents had an interest in so like I would latch onto them like so I'm such a big Jimmy Stewart fan just because I think my parents showed me that early on so I like never really had like the discovery of this like on my own because you know what I mean it was just like yeah I was I feel like that. it wasn't sort of like in the like like cabinet of like what we would be watching and I mean like while people were, like as you were saying the queer community would like go off to discover this by themselves I never really had the push to do so because I felt like at the time when I was a young kid, I was like, oh, I'm satiated enough with like the older movies that I'm seeing. Like, why would I have to go off and find something if I have like this movie already that like fills the need that I have in my heart? I think there's a sense too of like these movies aren't necessarily for me. Like, you know, I didn't watch it um, growing up, but I did watch like a lot of like 50s musicals, like Singing in the Rain and On the Town, but it was more like these like very sort of like, family friendly right, like right. big show stopping musicals like I didn't watch a lot of classic dramas or anything like that well you famously have only seen four movies yes it's true <laughs> <laughs> it's but, for a queer quadrant four movies that's all you need right, right. All yes you need. we we talk about only four movies on this podcast um but Travis what's your what's your relationship with whatever happened to baby Jane when did you first see it like how did you come to know about this 
Um, so I actually first saw it because uh, my partner um, is so much more cultural when it comes to film. <laughs> uh, I had not seen a lot of classic films. Um, and when we started dating, they were in film school and they were like, you've been working in film for years and you haven't seen X, whatever it is, including a classic statement. Baby Jane. Uh, And I'm like, yeah, no, no, I haven't. And they were like, no, sit down, sit down. We're watching. Uh, And I'm so glad because they've shown me so many great films. Um, And uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was one of them. So we watched that, I guess, maybe three or four years ago. Um, And I I instantly loved it for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, We just watched it again now um, for, for the podcast. And it's interesting like how much more I love it on a second watch as well, knowing what the ending mm. is, trying to see like the the little hints towards what's happening. Like the fact that it's the baby Jane doll that's broken at the start, right? Yeah. Like th- they're kind of foreshadowing the fact that, you know, this is what was the target here at that point. And it, I don't know. I kind of liked it. So it's a very smart horror movie. And like, yeah. I, it, I think as we've discussed, it like kicks off an entire genre of movies. Like, what other movie like has such an impact where it like essentially creates a genre? Yeah. You know, yeah. which is so cool. And like obviously like this is coming off of Psycho and stuff like that, but like this ultimately builds upon that. And as we've seen like what Betty Davis goes on to do after this and John Crawford and like all these other horror movies following it, it is really like the grand dame or like this big woman in a position and there's like horror surrounding her. This is my, some of my favorite names for this genre that whatever happened to baby Jane essentially created. Um, it's called the psycho bitty genre Iconic. and, yes. or the hag exploitation. Exploitation. I love it. It's so good, but I think it is like an amazing like subgenre of like, older women getting their chance in the spotlight mm-hmm. like getting to show that like nothing is more terrifying than a woman losing her beauty and agency but like at the same time was able to spotlight these like iconic actresses who were still very much in and their giving prime good performances oh of course please it's this weird sort of irony of the fact that you know joan and betty did this film to assert themselves as relevant actresses as you know i'm still here damn it kind of things and yet it spurred this genre of mocking older women. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. You're not useful to society anymore because you're not pretty. So it's it's kind of weird how like it worked really well for them, but also was the exception that proved the rule kind of thing. Like Totally. Mm. And yeah. even some of their, their later outings like Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte or Joan Crawford's horrible like axe murderer movie. I mean, it's so or sad. Or Lady yeah. in a Cage um, with See, Olivia she, de Havilland. She was a lady in a cage. She was. That. A lady in a cage, yes. Um, but like, can, that, can that, we talk that. about how wonderfully subtle it was to have Joan Crawford staring at a bird in a cage? Oh like, my god! Just the the layers of nuance and subtlety there. Of course, I half expected her to break out into Greenfinch and Linnet Bird at that point. <laughs> <laughs> my personal favorite is when she's just spinning endlessly in circles in her wheelchair. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. Honestly, Queen of Quarantine. We could only hope <laughs> to reach that level. Yas, Quarant Queen. <laughs> I think like watching it too, just to double back on like the queerness, like watching it with like Victor, I'm going to botch his last name, Buono. Buono. Um, yeah. But like he himself being gay, I think, or at least I don't know if he ever officially came out, but I think it's basically like confirmed that he was gay adds like an element. I think Edwin's character himself is coded as 
gay Absolutely. by living with his mother and you know what I mean it's, it's it's like all this sort of way that he holds himself and the way he talks and I think that that adds also a level of queerness to this movie that I wasn't expecting mm-hmm. and then as we'll get to later in the episode but both Brooke and I watched Feud which while also like sometimes not being historically accurate gave like a lot of interesting insight to then like launch onto research about him because I feel like he himself is just a fascinating actor and sort of presence within this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and went on to yeah. have like a very good career. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Died tragically young. Yeah. Feud is a, like a bit of a blind spot to um, my Ryan Murphy encyclopedia of knowledge. Um, it was for us. <laughs> I, I hate watch like everything that he makes. <laughs> like, oh, me too. We literally talked about this. We did the prom. A couple of weeks ago. A couple okay. of weeks ago. How, how is it? Oh my God, you haven't the seen prom? it? It's on my list. It's on my list. You can take it off. No, no, no. I think you should watch it. <laughs> the look on your face, Jordan. I think you should experience it because like, I think it's something that needs to be experienced. Actually, but it's, yeah, it's, it's actually... It's, it's, as a gay man, I think you should. I was like offended on, like, on behalf of Ryan Murphy because I was like, you're better than this. And like watching... Is he though? No, is but he? here's the thing. Yeah. Watching Feud, yep, yep. I was like, Feud is what you should be doing. We'll yes. talk about it yes. more after we, you know, talk about the main I feel event. like the only reason it ends up working is because it's a closed narrative. He can't keep churning out more content for it. That's the only thing that works is limiting him, is pulling... Pulling him back. Lindelof is calling because he agrees. <laughs> because that's the Damon Lindelof thing where it's like the homie needs parameters. But as which also just for a quick Ryan Murphy thing. Did you know that Ryan? I think this is fun. Did you know that he worked as a journalist and met Betty Davis? And had like a four hour conversation yeah, which with like, her. That really? makes, it makes yeah. like so much sense that he then goes to make feud. Yeah. Like, well, he was doing it like on behalf of when he was trying to make feud. Cause he was like, I want like the like behind the, the scenes. I want to know. Yeah. 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 So but cool. I was like, this makes sense now. We'll come back to it because yeah. who yeah. boy, do I, I have think thoughts? I agree. But I think before, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think before we even get into the plot of this movie, before we even discuss the feud itself, we have to take it way back to the early 1900s to discuss how the feud began because I think that the Betty versus Joan feud of it all is inherently like a part of what makes this such a queer classic. And like that the fact that it starts out in 1936 and literally goes on for the rest of these women's lives. Like they literally were butting heads for their basically the entire, like two thirds of their career. Like that's iconic. Like, yeah, well, well so that's the that's, that's the, the thing. So yeah. it starts just for laying the groundwork for where it starts out. So in 1933, Betty Davis was about to have her first above the title role when Joan Crawford announced that she was having a divorce, which ultimately stole the spotlight away from Betty, and that like instigated like everything because like the two of them would like. Uh, Betty Davis fell in love with uh, this guy, Francois Tone, but then Joan got to him first and married him. So there were like these constant bits like throughout their career where one of them would do something and then the other would get it or then like would upstage. So Betty Davis was essentially like a Warner Brothers, you know, stalwart for a while, but then she wanted out of her contract. She sues, she flies overseas. Joan Crawford comes in and starts taking up her, you know, yes. leftover roles, but then wins an Oscar for you know a role that Betty could have had and Betty was like wanting that third Oscar so it's like these bits and pieces throughout where you can just see them like needling each other career-wise whether intentionally or not but like 
they had to have been annoyed at each other, right? That's one side of the coin. Yeah. See, from what research I did, there's this excellent uh, video essay slash documentary on this channel called Be Kind Rewind. Yeah, um, I love them. Yeah. So they, what if they you're talk be about... mean and fast forward? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> guess you know. Well, I guess you didn't grow up with Blockbuster. You didn't have that PSA. Um... Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. I will not uh, have that aspersion on me. <laughs> There's a lot of things you can say about me, but God damn it, that's not one of them. Exactly. <laughs> Look, color me whatever color you want, but do not erase my blue and yellow. <laughs> but yeah, um, so what the, for people who don't know, they cover um, the stories behind Best Actress wins and Best Actress nominations uh, throughout the years at the Oscars. And uh, in this documentary sort of video essay that she goes over, she kind of points out that they didn't really often go for similar roles. Joan had her own sort of idea of what a role should be. It was classic. It was dramatic. It was uh, ingenue kind of thing. And Betty Davis was very rebellious and wanted weird out there character pieces that were very different. She wasn't very sexy. Usually she wasn't very, you know, um, sultry. It was this kind of either firecracker or weird kind of role that they went for. So they weren't really competing for roles. I mean, they were in different studios for a long time. Um, but, you know, in general, it was just more this kind of thing of like, possibly the media just trying to bait them at each other. For sure. Because that's what we do with women in power. When they start getting successful, we pit yep. them against each other. This movie literally opens, like we're not, like even like within the movie, they're like talking about like these two men who are basically trying to control like these women's lives. Yes. Like and we these... don't see it from their perspective, right? We no. see it from these two studio execs. Yeah. And we have this long walk and talk about them talking about each other's lives instead of actually us being a part of it and seeing it, which I think ends up being so prescient for what happens. So. Yeah. I think it is sort of like, uh, you know, probably the what is closest to reality is like this idea of a vicious cycle is that like the media saw an opportunity to stir up drama and then did so. And then that like, obviously you have people attacking you very personally in the media and I think like especially I mean we saw this up until I mean who are we kidding we still see it but I think by now a lot of celebrities are like yeah I don't listen to what people say about me because it drives you fucking nuts but like during this period of time like everyone was like who's talking about me in what publication so I think head a hopper exactly I think it was kind of like a back and forth of like the media would print terrible things Betty and Joan would be like okay well that's fucked up and like go out a little bit and that would give like more fuel to the fire yeah right in the studio sort of like wanting to like popular capitalize off of the feud itself because that would drive up ticket sales like if you're going to have your two huge leading actresses feuding on set like people are going to want to see what that drama inherently is oh yeah and Mm -hmm. it's like that is you know that's why people want to go see the movie you know it's an element of excitement yeah i mean look hollywood's kind of fucked up hot take i know but (laughs) Yeah, it was just, I think it was like, this was a particularly like venomous time because we were sort of out of kind of like the uber classic, like, you know, transition from silent into talkies, you know, the last of like the great movie stars were more into like what, something closer to like a modern celebrity system where um, the studios were falling out of grace a little bit and the stars were the ones that were like gaining power and realized that like people are coming to see me they're not coming to see the studio picture they want betty davis they want 
Joan Crawford and like how much sway that actually gave them. Yeah, because in that until that point, it had been the studio system, and it was like this idea of almost like repertory theater yeah. when it comes to the films. It's just we're gonna pick from our pool of actors and actresses um, to get this film sold, as opposed to you know, like as you said, uh, I'm here to see Betty Davis. I'm here to see Joan Crawford. I'm here to see what they can do. Um, it, it represented a very shifting of the times in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from the set, I think that there is just such fascinating tidbits that we should talk about like even if they're like fact or fiction i think the drama that stems from it is inherently like interesting well like you said jordan that's what kind of like makes that's part of what makes this such an enduring classic is right of course the drama right i mean like when fucking joan crawford died like betty davis is quoted saying like you should never say bad things about the dead you should only say good joan crawford is dead good and like there's no source on that (laughs) but like Really? It's iconic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like people like there's no actual fact grounded to her saying that, but like it's a thing it that's printed. passed around everywhere. Right. And yeah. it's like Betty Davis having like the Coke machine installed ver- or yeah, the Coke machine installed versus Joan Crawford's Pepsi machine. You know what I mean? I mean like mm-hmm. and then if we get just like to the Academy Awards, like everything around the Academy Awards is even more fascinating because we'll give that its own moment. Joan Crawford. Hmm. We'll give that right. its own moment. That's what I'm saying. So I'm like, I'm like, I understand that we don't want to fuel into this fire, but I think it's important to talk about these things because they are inherently like a part of what was fueled into this movie. If that makes oh, sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It wouldn't be anywhere near as successful as it wasn't. I mean, I think, I think that's part of the reason Joan approached Betty, not because she's, you know, just an incredible actress and did such a great job at the role, but also she knew that the tabloids were pitting them against each other. She knew that there was this public consciousness idea of yeah. how much they were at each other's throats. And that's what would have made this film sell so well. It's like, oh, they're right. going to be working together. They've only done little bits with each other. They've never actually done a full film together. And like Joan inherently knew how to market herself. Like, yeah, like she's a good mark like she knows what makes her a star and she knows mm-hmm. how to like publicize herself as a star i think which is like a part of the whole joan crawford thing yes like yeah. she knows what she's bringing to the table and she wants you to see that yeah and like she she was the one that really had her finger on the pulse of like what it means to market yourself what it means to like exist in this system and how to like you know get the most bang for your buck out of it but I mean not to say that Joan Crawford wasn't talented obviously like she's a fucking legend but Betty Davis just had that she she nobody was doing it like her like she had that 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 like the balls to take these parts that nobody else would take so she really was makeup she was like the only game in town when it comes to that sort of thing Mm -hmm. absolutely and now those people are just a pain in the ass on set. But at the time, it was really cool. <laughs> yes, exactly. I feel like uh, most of the stories about Betty Davis, too, were like, yes, obviously she was difficult. They were all difficult. But she, like, she wasn't. <laughs> she she had more class than current, quote, unquote, method actors. Listen, I have a job in film because actors are difficult and I know how to put up with them. <laughs> so if they want to keep doing that to keep me employed, go for it. Do what you oh. want. Travis, I don't think you'll ever be unemployed if that is yeah. the factor that determines <laughs> it. Like, you will have no shortage of jobs. <laughs> I, but I mean, yeah, it's like if you can wield that much that much power, then like, I'd see the appeal. Why wouldn't you? If people, oh, of course. if you are like, why people are coming to see this movie, then like, why wouldn't you demand all the things that you're demanding why wouldn't you put a pepsi machine right <laughs> if your husband you know was you know a part of the pepsi cola company may as well mm-hmm. how do you want to structure 
discussing the behind the scenes drama? Should we just like go through it or what do you want? What are you feeling? I feel like we should mention some of the more exciting points. Travis, do you have anything off the bat that you're like, this thing was absolutely nuts? Um, I, th- This isn't really so much a, a drama point between the two of them, but the one that really strikes me, because again, I've worked with these people on set. I know this person. The fact that she was on the beach um, Joan Crawford, and she insisted on having her like breastplate, like her fake boobs, yes, as pronounced as possible, while she is dying of starvation on the beach. <laughs> like the fact that that was what her focus was. Like I find that really interesting. Like I don't. My immediate thought is, oh my god, you vain, shallow creature! Are you kidding me? But then I think about the fact that like women have a certain place in Hollywood and a certain expectation placed on them. And the fact that she already spent this entire film, um, having to look old and washed up and, you know, wasting away that kind of thing. And if this is what's going to make her feel more comfortable in this moment to let her have this extremely vulnerable scene, just let her have it. Like it's, it's not distracting from the scene. It's really not like it's, it's not making it honestly that difficult. Just, if that's what's going to make a performer comfortable enough to give you that scene, that performance, let them have it, honestly. Like, and it's funny that that became such a point of like um, ridicule for Betty later when she would keep making fun of Joan for it. And it's like, as if you didn't have those moments yourself. Come on. Like, I think there's just an insecurity there between, you know, with both of them because of just like, as we've said, like how the media was portraying them. And like, I think both of them, less Betty, more Joan about like, there's an ageism that was happening in Hollywood. And Mm -hmm. I think there's that fear of like not getting these roles and not having your place anymore. And like Betty literally played a version of Joan in like the movie, the star where it was like about a washed up actress. And I think that if you have a contemporary of yours playing a version of yourself about who's washed up, that's going to say something. But then even further, when you're both in a movie about like, two washed up aging stars you're gonna want to like give something to that like this is like is this going to be your last big role like is this going to have an impact you know when you're this old in hollywood like you don't know when your last role will be your last role and i think like wanting to sell as much of your star power as possible to like alleviate whatever insecurities that you have is definitely caked into it for them both this was mm-hmm. a very difficult time for women in, Ho- in Hollywood. It is still a very difficult time <laughs> for women yeah. in Hollywood, particularly women over the age of 40. And once, one, once you crack 30, women they're over like, the age you're of 30, a grandma. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You you can play a mother at 32 to right. someone who's mm, 25. Your age. Yeah. Like Amy Poehler, Rachel McAdams, and Mean Girls are what? Like four years apart from each other? Or something mm-hmm. like that. I actually, like, look, it's the year 2021. The audacity of them to cast Rachel Weiss as Scarlett Johansson's mother in Black Widow. And I was like, they did. I mean, to be fair, I haven't actually seen the movie yet, but from like the trailers and everything. Just the choice though. The choice alone. Those are David Harbour and Rachel Weiss are their parents. And I was like, what the, she is literally like 10 years older than Scarlett Johansson. It's absolutely absurd. Um, Anyway. Absolutely so funny. Anyway, um, <laughs> yes, but I think one of the smartest and cruelest things that Hollywood ever did was discover that they could very effectively pit women against each other. <laughs> Exploit, mm-hmm. yeah. By narrowing, you know, the 
the the the pool of roles that were available mm-hmm. to women particularly women of a certain age like you had to kind of like fight tooth and nail to be the one that was remaining relevant and it's like it's it's you know like many like horrible societal structures that exist it's entirely like man-made it's entirely constructed there can be enough roles to go around for everyone to have a robust you know later in life dance card in the movies but that's simply not the case and it's you know you can blame box office you can blame i don't know vanity whatever the fuck but the truth is that it's like it's very constructed um Mm -hmm. and this happened to be you know whatever happened to baby jane happens to be a very good example of like the fallout of creating something like that the need to hold on to like as a woman the need to hold on to the currency that is like being attractive and Which being plays young into the and themes being of the movie too completely and i think that also yeah. plays into like the queerness of it like i think it's like these two women who are like forced to stay inside and like reckon with like you know their past and like have to like come to terms with their own pain and i feel like that's an inherently like queer experience like i like don't want to like tag it on but like being forced to like be inside this cage and like wanting to break out and wanting to like be like how you envision yourself but like Mm -hmm. ultimately society is like forcing you behind these bars you know yeah well, what I also thought was really interesting watching it the second time around was uh, you guys had come and guested on our podcast with uh, Ophira Kaloff, who was talking yeah. about um, uh, disability issues and disability rights. And it was interesting to watch it once I had heard from her and like really started to take that in and look at it again through this lens of the idea that um, Blanche is not limited by her disability. She's limited by Jane. Like, she could have had access to all these things. She stuck her on the second floor in a wheelchair. Like, why would you do that? It's this horrible, cruel thing to do. And she (laughs) finds ways around it. Yeah. 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 And she finds ways around it. She tries to get out of her chair, tries to go down the stairs. She tries to throw a note at the window. She tries to, I don't want to say manipulate Jane because it sounds really negative, but she tries to play the situation to her advantage whenever she can. or Appeal to her better nature. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um. And she does whatever she can. And again, it's not that she is this useless, incapable uh, character in the story. It's that it's Jane that's limiting her and it's people that limit us. It's our, Mm -hmm. you know, it's what we do to each other that makes this a problem. Um, So that was also really interesting to watch it again through that lens after having, you know, spoken to Afira and like talked about all those issues. So, yeah. Both women are limited by society and also themselves. Like if... Look, it's like if, if, if two of them went to therapy and were able to talk this through, like, I think it would be okay, but they don't. And instead they feed each other dead animals or like tie each other up. You know what I mean? Like, or just it, waiting for the tweet that says, that, you know, sisters will literally feed each other a dead bird instead of going to therapy. <laughs> I mean, right. <laughs> yeah. Like that is really like, it boils down to like, they haven't worked past childhood trauma in uh, pushed upon them by their father. And so, like, the ultimate reveal where Blanche actually, like, put herself in the wheelchair, like, she hurt herself to get back at Jane for how Jane was treating her because Jane was jealous that Blanche eventually got more roles when uh, baby Jane's stardom dwindled. And all of this just stems back to, like, how Jane's father, like, didn't, like, actually parent them in a proper way and, like, like, allowed baby Jane to, like, boss him around and, like live in the spotlight without like any repercussions and like this all boils back down to like their childhood trauma that they haven't processed or worked through yet yeah and like that's the thing it's all constructed 
it's all man-made. This is like it's the fucking Panama Canal is what this is. I th- yes, it's very. <laughs> God Sorry. damn it! Sorry. Wait, um, so does that make Baby Jean the Evergreen or whatever <gasps> the name of that ship was? Yes, yes, the, the Evergreen. Yes. Oh wait, no, that's the Suez Canal. That's, wait, the, that's, the, Suez the, Canal. that's the Suez Canal. But like, uh, look, we'll make I it work. So smart for a second. Travis, God, we I have knew, a, I, I a gigantic a Baby Jane lays down across the <laughs> Panama Canal. <laughs> You shall not pass, Daddy. Thank you. <laughs> sorry. Don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. Look, I think, okay, yes, all you were saying about this being constructed, it being man-made, ties back to what we were saying about, like, the film industry at large, but I also think it's hilarious how the film industry is, like, you know, most of the time fails to be even a little bit self-aware, and the fact that this was pitched as, like, a schlocky genre picture, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it lost the best picture nom. Um, oh my god like it wasn't considered like a serious enough Mm -hmm. film and it's like this is a film about like what being a child star does to people this is about like the horrible cogs of the hollywood machine and hollywood was like i don't know i mean come on we're not gonna take this seriously as you were saying earlier like you kicked it off by saying aldrich just you know shunted as being like an auteur or like an actual director people were like you're a journeyman when like clearly he has a vision here and like him being snubbed of a best director right the boy made the blueprint so yeah I think it's really cool how he was like, uh, he like wrote and directed a lot of his stuff too. Cause you would yeah. think of him as like, oh, I don't know. He's a studio guy. You pull him and you give him a big pile of scripts. He picks one. But like he, he like, he had he the, did the work. He had the vision. So here's the thing. You guys are talking best picture nom. Now I want to hear from you. Who would you have given the best actress nomination to? Because I will pit these women against each other. And I'm uh, very curious which one of the two, if you could only give the nomination to one of them, which would it have been? Well, I think you, you go supporting and best actress. I think clearly you have BB Jane as best, best actress with Joan as supporting. Yes. Okay. But, but as we know, they would never have actually agreed to that. Right. right. And I can yeah. see because I, I do, I do think that that is like the prudent thing to do. But of course, Joan Crawford is the one that came like, you know, jump started this whole production. She would have never oh, accepted not. a supporting nom. No, she like, wouldn't have. Never. So if I had to pick, I think I would also give it to Betty Davis because Same. I think she has a better shot at the win. Like I. Interesting. Okay. Also, I when you look at the fact that Anne Bancroft one for the miracle worker which if people don't know is that helen keller biopic which i have actually seen i didn't realize it and then i was researching and i was like oh i've seen this movie love bancroft that's like such an oscar Beatty performance oh my god like she plays a blind teacher who's helping helen keller understand how to communicate with the world like i'm sorry joan crawford is not beating that but i do think that had there not been interference which we will get to later Oh, God. Yeah. I just want to talk about the plot first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is you know in cartoons when like someone runs at a wall and they like smack like it's like it looks like a glass wall and they like smack against it. That's how I felt right there. Like I was running towards the Oscars, <laughs> but there was a glass wall in front, and I just smashed against it. I think Betty Davis has a better, a better absolutely chance overall. But Travis, interesting choice. Okay, what are cool. your thoughts? You definitely. Feel, I see, I'm giving you're giving Big Joan energy right now. <laughs> Am I taking you on a face journey? Yes. Um, okay. Uh, I, interestingly enough, like, I feel like at the time I would have given it to Betty, but having seen the films that I've seen now, um, I'm less intrigued by Old Lady Goes Crazy. Mm. Uh, as as great as a job as Betty Davis does with it, it's, just, it's so good. I'm still less interested by it, but I mean, 
At the risk of being a bit of a downer, I grew up in a household with someone who was volatile and abusive, and I had to learn certain behaviors to get out of dangerous situations. And watching Joan, you know, sort of work her way around that path and try to keep herself safe in that situation was fascinating to me and something that I, like, really related to and really found interesting. Mm. So... Between the two, I find that a little more intriguing. But I feel like at the time when we didn't have the psycho bitty genre and we didn't have a lot of like films of people falling to madness, um, I feel like I would have given it to Betty Davis. So it's kind of a weird question like of what would I do now? What would I have done then? I don't know. Well, I think it also stems down to it's ultimately I think what Brooke was saying is like we're looking at this like who is going to win versus who's mm-hmm. giving a better performance mm-hmm. because... Yeah. Like, Betty Davis, Ryan Ryder, I love her with all my heart, but I do think that Joan is giving a better performance in the movie because I think it's slightly more nuanced, whereas Davis is, like, ultimately, like, just kind of allowed to have free roam and, like, give everything that she wants to give, whereas Joan actually has to sort of, like, deal with the repercussions on her own internally. And so, but you never really see the Academy going for a quiet performance versus an Every allowed once performance. Every in a while. Right. They, they like, they, they very, do it. Very, very rarely. But yes, like, and that, that is like the, the question here. But yeah. I'm really glad that you, you said what you said, Travis, because I also feel like during this time, we definitely like did not have the same conversation about like Mm-mm. emotional abuse and like what these sort of dynamics mean in any way shape or form Mm -hmm. so like to the idea that like Joan Crawford's performance has been so like enduring in this very specific way I think like speaks to the quality and like how well she sort of understood what she was doing as well like it's not just a good dramatic performance like she she really has like a deep a deep connection with like the material yeah for sure yeah it's it's oh god Ooh, it's so interesting. It's a media performance. Because <laughs> she, she grew up in like a very, she grew up dirt poor. She grew up in like a very like toxic, abusive household. And like sort of, I feel like what the general consensus has been from like people that knew her and sort of like all these different biographies is that like she grew up having this very like odd relationship with sex where she like understood it as like a tool to weaponize yeah yeah. and so like how that like shaped a lot of her relationships and like how she had to interact with a lot of people knowing that that was like a weapon in her arsenal with Um, like directors actors etc to get get those roles yeah I think it's also fascinating too because if we just want to touch on John Crawford queerness once we're here because there are those rumors about Joan Crawford sort of being a bisexual. It's obviously never been cemented and there are people who are like this is a fact but Mm -hmm. there is that rumor that Joan had a crush on Betty Davis and Betty Mm -hmm. Davis was like "Mm, no I don't like this and she even turned down a role to be like there was a movie called Cage that Crawford was in and Betty Davis said that she did not want to be in that dyke picture. Um, wow! Wild. Betty Davis is hashtag canceled. <laughs> yeah, retroactively, uh, retroactively hashtag, yeah. hashtag canceled. Yes, um, but yes, the Joan Crawford by sort of floating question that is in the old Hollywood air because, of course, no one at this time was ever coming out. But wait, is that what we call it—a bygone era? Oh my god! The buys <laughs> were all gone. The gaze code is shaking. Yes. Uh, <laughs> We're slowly going to retroactively queer old Hollywood through horrible puns. And yes. that's, I think, is yes. like the best tool that we have. Is that have. not the queer experience? Yes. yes. Uh, pun, just <laughs> terrible puns. Okay, look. 
there there is a very specific sector of history that i'm interested in and it was which women in old hollywood were having sex who, with other women who was fucking <laughs> who was because okay look <laughs> look i they're like oh god it's like when you look at the the you know the Cary grant bachelor pad pictures mm-hmm. or like all of these rumors about like katherine hepburn or marlene dietrich like yeah it's so I mean, nothing's changed. We're still doing this with Sean Mendez, the poor guy. A poor man. Like, nothing has changed. I, I do, I do feel bad for him. But yeah, it's insane that this is still like a topic of conversation. Yeah. But I feel there. So there was like this kind of like thesis that a lot of female stars in old Hollywood were looking to each other for like a certain level of like comfort and romance that many men couldn't give them at the time because like it was just so horrifically toxic and like abusive yes men were Mm -hmm. you know running the town in like such a specific and like gross way um and so like there was a lot of like interaction between female stars and like some women that were working behind the scenes um it's called the sewing circle and there it's all like rumor based mostly um but they're the goss yeah like but there there are some great some great books about it um and maybe like one day if we end up covering a movie that intersects it i'll be able to do like a full deep dive and like do some proper research but it's really fascinating i think like you know with most aspects of career history it was more common than people think for um sure. from both sides of course we yeah. talked about victor buono and many others i mean yeah you have like even like rock hudson you know what i mean like as like a queer man but like suppressed it yeah. for his whole career it, it's so sad to see at this time that like people just like weren't ex- like accepted and like whether or not joan was or not i think it's just you know a product of like again the rumor mills like yes, spinning completely yeah. um yeah queer history is fucking sucks um and, and it's <laughs> interesting where it's taken us though like yeah. in the same year and pretty much the same month i think if, i don't remember what time is anymore quarantine's a bitch um <laughs> In, within the same month, we've got Little Nas X releasing uh, Call Me By Your Name and yeah. being, you know, just vilified for it. Uh, and then what's his name from The Bachelor? Colton uh, Colton something? Underwood. Despicable. Yeah. My Managing enemy. to, like, book himself a Netflix special based right. on the fact that he's talking about his queerness. And, the and he's different a levels toxic, to which we... awful person. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to this wonderfully affirming, you know, aside for some possible weird Nicki Minaj fan shit with Little Nas <laughs> Uh, from the past you know this wonderful affirming personality who's saying you can love who you are you can be who you are and how does society treat those two people and which one to be lift up and which one to be vilified like Mm -hmm. we're not done with it we're just not nope we'll still have like the same conversations in 20 years that we had 20 years ago it will just have like changed slightly but you know a lot of progress is two steps forward one step back mm-hmm. it's happening it's just happening at a happening at a snail's pace but i really it, that's why we like i'm very happy every time we get to talk about like a classic movie on mm-hmm. the podcast because it's like you think like oh well, you know queer content sort of is a thing that popped up in the 80s and then like it happened to stick around but once again like it's always been there like you know if we can bring light to a certain like sector of time in any way that's like a total win um to show that like we are still having these conversations and like the same sort of shit is still going on but it has been going on it's not it's nothing new yeah 
Yeah. So do you want to talk about the the super non-queer plot of this movie? I love it. It's great. I had such a fun time watching. I think it's also one of my favorite things. We'll get into the Oscars because this also ties into the Oscars, but the use of black and white in this movie, I think is really fantastic and how it did get a best cinematography nod. But I think the black and white really does play such a factor into the camp and also the storyline. If this movie was in color, I feel like there would be a lot removed from it. Like, I don't think that you have the impact that this movie has in color as black and white, just like from like frame one, you know what I mean? Like it immediately sets a tone and sort of like a vibe. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is like a lot of genre pieces were in black and white to up the suspense and stuff like that. Very like Hitchcock inspired. Um, And yes, like you said, this was right after psycho. So um, like this, this was sort of like following precedent, but also cheaper um, baby. Like, I think it's, I think, yes, and cheaper because this was a shoestring budget. I think it's yeah. cool because this is a movie about aging starlets. It's about like the fading silver screen and like, you know, baby Jane is like a, a uh, I mean, what's the proper? She's like, she's like a, she's a vaudeville, vaudeville performer. Yeah. yeah. Which is like, that's very much like a, a bygone era. Uh, (laughs) a time that no longer exists so it has this like air of nostalgia like these women want to get back to a time when they were successful um that is you know now faded i mean even the fact that like she was famous at the time she was a huge star but then that entire medium just got shoved to the side so it didn't matter anymore and that's why no one remembers baby jane hudson and yet they still remember uh blanche even though it's been years since she worked but that medium allowed her to, you know, preserve herself for time. I think it's so funny when Baby Jane always goes everywhere. She's like, I'm Baby Jane Hudson. Do you remember me? And everyone's like, mm-hmm. Totally. Yes. <laughs> Please don't hurt me. <laughs> I'm a little scared of you. It's that same conversation you've had with everyone on the street now that they're wearing masks. It's like, oh, hey, it's you. It's like, I have no idea who you are right, right like, now. Mm, uh-huh. <laughs> Wish I could say. Okay, I really appreciate how in the beginning of this movie they're talking about how baby Jane grew up to be like a shitty Hollywood actress and Blanche like totally outshined her in every way shape or form but they use an old Betty Davis clip yes of her (laughs) and like even though it's some nothing clip where she's playing a secretary I was like oh my god look at her go and then of course you have the studio executives being like wow she's horrible and I was like are you blind it's Betty Davis she's giving us the goods honey no matter what You can't she master acting because like, it has to be an old clip, right? She looks like she's yeah, like no, in her twenties. It's her old movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say it makes me think of like um, I want to see the picture within the picture that they keep talking about Wait, with uh, with Blanche's movies whenever they talk about you know young Blanche and the movie she was in. Uh, it makes me think of like Home Alone and like the um, the movie within the movie. I'm like, yes. I want right. to see that though. I want someone make that, please. I want to know what filthy that was. animals. Yeah, exactly. Bang, 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 bang. Yes, <laughs> agreed. I mean, look, the honestly, the the plot is a fucking breeze. It's super simple. It's 1917. Yes, we have spoiled little eight-year-old baby Jane Hudson as a vaudeville singer singing that horrible, I mean, beautiful song that Thank Jordan you. did for us at the opening. Yes. She's a spoiled brat. It made me question my like of like action figures and like things at this time. Like when I was a kid, I'm like because of the dolls. I mean, like are action figures and baby dolls like a mistake, specifically of people? Like it feels so weird to be selling something of your kid 
Yeah. I think part of it is the size. Yes. I feel They're like so if big. If it was this big, it would have been like, oh, that's a cute little dolly. Right. And when it's this big, or I don't know why I'm doing this as if our listeners can see what the sizes I'm doing. But yeah, this little like almost toddler sized doll. You're like, oh, that's like a real person. That's right. weird. It's creepy. And they like, market it as like made with real hair and stuff oh. like that. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And no. like when Edwin is holding the doll and holding the leg up, like... Uh, am I wrong in thinking that was just a little bit creepy? It like, looked, it felt perverted. It felt perverted. Right? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. The movie is dark and doesn't have a great outlook necessarily on society. In the best way. Right. But like, that's what, yeah, that's what makes it good is because it's like, oh, everyone in this movie is kind of terrible. Yes. Yeah. No. And like, yeah. like it's like I said, it's so hilarious that people were like, oh, genre schlock. Um, when it's like, oh no, this is like a takedown yes. of everything that entertainment is. Um, mm-hmm. The credits come 12 minutes in. Yes. There's, Iconic. There's basically like three vignettes, which is baby Jane in her prime. And then Blanche as like a young, you know, in her twenties actress mm-hmm. in her prime with the studio execs talking about like, oh, like Jane's horrible, but Blanche is like a great actress. Um, and then we have what we assume to be vindictive Jane crippling, Blanche via a car accident and then it's like okay now I get to the actual story um 12 minutes in like you said it's good it's very good um but basically Jane and Blanche now in their 50s 60s shrug as middle-aged women baby Jane obviously played by Betty Davis Blanche obviously played by Joan Crawford everybody else doesn't really matter this is a cheap movie so cheap. One location. One mm-hmm. location. You got like six there are actors. Few locations, yeah. Yeah, but that beach day probably was annoying to shoot. Oh God, I know. <laughs> Love the beach sequence. That's one of my. Fa- it's probably my favorite in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they had to do reshoots on a soundstage to get the proper close-ups because Travis of the aforementioned uh, fake boob incident yes. and or um, Joan being like needing to look like beautiful and young and um, will you still love me <laughs> when I'm no longer young and beautiful mm-hmm. and the director <laughs> being like dude you're supposed to be dying like can we calm down I think she looks appropriately terrible in whatever they ended up using I agree yes. um, her makeup's great in this eyebrows you, you know for who's makeup's insane Betty it's Davis. Betty Davis Marine and the Diamonds better be suing. <laughs> I mean, I think she should be suing them, if anything. Right. My favorite is like what Betty Davis said about the makeup is that uh, Jane never washes it off. She just puts a new layer on every morning. Like, like, ugh. So, so gross. gross. So gross. Betty Davis Crusty. famously like did her own makeup for this. If you if you don't know the visual that we're talking about, like, please just do up. yourself a favor and Google it. It's honestly like incredible. It's so radical for the time. She didn't um, care what she looked like. She wanted yeah. to give a good performance. Yeah. She used an old Joan Crawford wig. But she didn't cool. know. She didn't know. Yeah. She but, didn't know at the time. But yeah. like also cool. Like, Very that's cool. so fun. I feel like I remember reading this quote from Betty Davis where she was like, I wanted to look like so many of the women that I would see on like Hollywood Boulevard and stuff like that. Like actual women that are past their prime and how they deal with that. She was like, I didn't want to look like a facsimile of someone who was aging gracefully. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to look like someone who was desperately trying to cling to like whatever she could, which is hilarious yeah. when you think about how Joan Crawford was like, I will be in this wheelchair and I will look so poised and my eyebrows will be so good. So good. <laughs> you are going to want to fuck me. Have you ever run into a baby Jane in Hollywood? 
Uh, I cannot say that I have. I know. I'm trying to think of if I've seen someone. But I'm also vibe. smart. I mean, she just and looks I like don't gut go at this there. Point. Yeah. <laughs> I I try to avoid the uh, scarier parts mm. of Hollywood proper. Hollywood Boulevard itself. Yes, yes, exactly. And also, it's like it's kind of like if you live in New York, you would know you would never Not go, go to, to Times Square. Square. Yeah. If you live in yeah. Los Angeles, you never go to Hollywood Boulevard. No. She's yeah, like giving fair. prototype Joker vibes, you know, with her makeup. Ew, Jordan, why <laughs> I did had you to, have say, to it. say it. I had to say it because you know people on the internet. If like some like guy's watching this, he's going to be like, "Wow, she's like the woman Joker." I really wish that you hadn't said that. I'm sorry. Okay, wait. I mean, the film's message indeed is we live in a society. We so. do live in a <laughs> These society. These women live in a society. Oh my god. <laughs> Anyways, she's I, even got the weird dance sequence. Oh my god! Well, this whole thing turns into like a prank war. It's basically like can Betty like do so much trauma to Joan, where Joan will just be like, "Okay, fine, I won't eat and I'll die." Like feeding her birds, copying her voice. Betty just like every time she comes in, she's just like, "I'm going to ruin your life." It's kind of like horrible to watch because Blanche seems like a relatively decent person, and like right. the end reveal, <laughs> like you said, Travis makes it a much more interesting second watch. Oh, absolutely, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, and like it, she's nice enough that Elvira seems to care about her. Like you guys said that there's no one in the film with any redeeming qualities. I'd say like at least Elvira. Yeah. Oh, like, oh Elvira. she's cool. It, like she uh until she, she gets killed. Have, yeah, I mean it's a shame what the film does to her, but um I don't know where I was going with this point. The whole point is we stand. Uh, <laughs> yes, we do stand. Elvira, uh, right. Elvira's the maid. There's like a nosy next door neighbor who's like kind of cool, but literally has no bearing on the plot. And then yeah. uh, there's... Baby Hyman, baby. Yeah. Well, that's her, yeah. Daughter. Her so, daughter. Yeah. The neighbor's daughter was played, played by. by Betty Davis's real life daughter. She's not very good in the movie. No. Um, which is kind of But hilarious. she's good at calling her mother fat. So, you know, that's a thing. She really spits that line out. I know, right? It felt a little like she felt it you know like she wished she could say that to betty or something you know a little too much meat on that mm-hmm. and then the, i think the only other character of note is uh victor bono like we said who plays edwin flag who's like a down on his luck composer um who like gets uh gets a, a job working for a baby Jane to sort of like revamp her vaudeville act and the twilight years of her life, which is obviously a terrible idea and ends horribly yeah. for everyone involved. But honestly, She's like, I'm going to put on a show that I put on when I was 12 years old. Do you think it's a good idea now that I'm 60, the exact same show? How do you feel? Great. And he's yeah? like, yeah, that sounds great. How much are you paying uh, me? Right. No, he just is constantly like, yes. Oh my God. I loved you. This is great. Wow. Love the house. Great shape. Not scary at all. We all deserve a hype man like Edwin. I know, seriously I like he's kind of he kind of is like slimy but he's also kind of a sweetheart and like we were saying with like sort of if you want to talk about textual queer coding like within the movie he's definitely a little you know like yeah. flamboyant yeah lives with his mom yeah mm-hmm. and he, he sort of puts on he puts on this whole like British air mm-hmm. when he goes and talks to baby Jane like he's usually like a normal American dude and he like goes and he's like oh yeah I'm a famous composer. Oh, yeah, so cool. yes. I love the arguments that his he has with his mother just at home. Like she's like, "This is Baby Dean Hudson. She's crazy," and he's like, "Mother, shut up." Yeah, <laughs> I love he's he's really really great. Yeah, um, Victor great. Bono mm-hmm. was a, a a theater actor who, and this was like his big break in Hollywood, and he ended up having like a really great character actor run, including a lot of Robert Aldrich movies because, of course, Robert Aldrich was like 
okay, you're great. You should be in it. I'm going to bring you into the fold, baby. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's, that's the, that's the basics. Um, I don't know. You know, the plot is basically just Blanche trying to escape from this crazy fucking house. Um, that's like a decrepit old Hollywood mansion that baby Jane has trapped her in. I love the sequence when she tries to crawl down the stairs. She, you know, she gets out of her wheelchair. It's basically like her. I knew she was going like, to crawl down those stairs. Of course. The second they this showed movie that sets staircase. That, how many times have we seen this scene? Like on screen since this movie, you know what I mean? It's oh, yeah. constantly replicated. They're, they're Chekhov stairs, right? Yes. Exactly, <laughs> literally. But I loved that sequence. It was like, like whether or not she'll be able to call the doctor before Jane gets home or not. But Spoiler then Jane alert. has been able to she adopt doesn't. her voice so she can call the bank and call the doctor and basically like sort of ward everybody off. I have some good trivia yeah. about that. Yes, this gain from the IMDb trivia page, one of our our greatest <laughs> our greatest modern inventions. Apparently, Betty Davis was actually terrible at copying Joan Crawford's voice because Joan Crawford has a very sort of like you know designed old Hollywood way of speaking. So they just like dubbed her. They like ADR'd oh, her yeah. basically. Yeah. Oh, that's why I thought that for sure. There's no way Betty could pull that. But off. apparently, they tried it and it didn't really work. Yeah, that'd be chaotic. So here's the thing: Baby Jane is a lip sync assassin. Oh my god! Literally a lip sync assassin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) See, no wonder this has endured. All the pieces are there. What other scenes do you like? I mean, like the whole like her singing in the house, how cringe that is. You know, I mean, like her bowing, the whole killing sequence of Elvira, where Elvira sneaks in and the neighbor is like, "Hey, Elvira, like I would love to like have her come clean my house." And Jane's like, "Why?" And she's like, well, she's over your house right now cleaning. Baby Jane's like, oh, no, I fired her. Uh-oh. Going to go upstairs and see and murder her. Business. Travis, you look like you wanted to. to oh, no, I was just going to say, like, I, I love all the suspense in it and how beautifully the camp makes you go from suspense to dark humor. Like, because of the camp sensibility, you can move between those so quickly and easily. Like, that moment where Baby Jane says to Edwin, um, you know, I've got some family issues that this should take about a week or so to resolve. And you're like, oh, you are literally plotting out how long it's going to take her to starve to death. Like, that's that's so dark. Yes. But it's so funny. It's yeah. really funny. Because, like, it's, it's done with a very... It's done with actually, like, a surprisingly light hand because, as we, as we <laughs> mentioned, people were like, yeah, this is the next psycho. This is, like, crazy town bananas. And, like, it actually has, like, a lot of kind of, like subtle tease that like clue the audience into the level of you know crazy um that's Mm -hmm. happening it's not just like melodrama for two straight hours i love what was sort of like betty davis's oscar scene where she is um trying to sing her beautiful song um in front of the mirror and sort of like comes into this really like harsh overhead lighting and realizes how like old and washed up she she is and then just sort of cries about it it's it's amazing it's like a one a one take um sort of uh there's actually a great scene in feud where uh susan sarandon as betty davis is like replaying that scene and joan crawford like storms into set and she's like hello this is like supposed to be my oscar moment it's good um we'll touch on feud briefly at the end of this um yeah it's a good time i don't know there's a lot of them having tense conversations with each other and i think hanging out intimacy between them like when joan or when betty like I think once the death of Elvira happens, like Betty's like sort of scrambling to figure out what to ha- like what to do with the body and like trying to get, you know, Blanche out of the house, I think is super fun and like trying to carry her, of course. 
Um, you want to talk about the trivia for that scene? Where she had rocks in her pockets. Joan Crawford. <laughs> doing the most. I love it. I love it so much. And then Betty apparently kicking Joan in, in the, the head, head while she's doing, yeah. Allegedly. 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 I believe it. Um, and then that was later stirred up for Oscar drama. But of course, I think I think the only other thing to mention is the end of the film, um, which is, you know, they go to the beach to escape the police that are looking for these the cops missing that are people. also at the beach and also looking right at them. Yeah. And, and Betty literally <laughs> comes up next to them. Mm-hmm. But then th- that's how they catch her. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. But um, Joan <clears throat> Blanche is dying in the sand and she's like, Jane, I got to tell you something. You didn't cripple me all those years ago with the car accident. I crippled myself to get back at you. So you would have to take care of me for the rest of my life, which is like... Oh, you think that was a deliberate choice? Is that is she that said not it what was it a is? Choice. Yeah, she said it was like vindictive. I think. I thought it was her like seriously trying to kill her, screwing up and then trying to make the best of it. That's how I interpreted it. Oh. Let's I thought see. she... Because she says that I... You saw the car in time and you got out of the way. Isn't that what she says? Yeah, I think so. Blanche tried to run Jane over because she was angry at Jane for mocking her at a par- party earlier that night. Blanche's spine broke when her car struck the iron gate outside their mansion, blah, blah, blah. She dragged herself in front of the car's hood to stage the accident and frame Jane. Right. Travis is right, and we are wrong. Wow. Yes. Okay. Sorry, I wasn't trying to call you out. Oh, no. I just wanted to make sure oh, I no, am no, Drag no. us. <laughs> Please do. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Blanche took advantage of Jane's shock and subsequent bender, removing yeah, the real dynamics she made the of best the, event. Of the situation right. afterwards. Yeah. Um, and subjected Jane to a life of guilt, loneliness, and servitude. Mm, nothing yeah. better. Mm, so, super fucked up. But basically, yes. the there's the, the beautiful ending line of Jane saying, so you mean all this time we could have been friends? And just cracks. Cracks. Yeah. Dances down the beach as she's surrounded slowly Everyone by is the like, police. What is going on here? And we don't actually know if Blanche dies or not. Ooh. I, she definitely lives. As I was watching that, I think of that moment where you're on set and you need to explain to the background, uh, like the extras, what is going on in the scene. And can you imagine being there and being like, okay, so she's this woman who was a vaudeville star when she was a kid and now she's old and crazy and you're going to stare at her because you think she killed her sister, but she thinks she's in a vaudeville play. So you're going to have to try to play both angles there. <laughs> like, and also there's ice cream involved. So just like be aware of that. You know, we don't have a lot of time here. <laughs> I love that they also get there to the beach at night. And so Blanche's body is lying on the beach. I thought what was going to happen is that like Jane was just going to let like the rising tide come in and just like let Blanche get like Swept oh out to sea. God. Which, like, not a bad not idea. Not the worst idea. Like, honestly. Right. Like, if she's trying to kill her, like, you brought her to the beach. Like, just finish the job. Baby Jane <laughs> plot holes. Six way more effective ways Blanche should have died. Just saying. Oh that's what, God, I, that's what I thought while watching. It's not a critique. It's just like, I was like, oh, she's going to murder her by the water. Okay. There we go. Know. Um, so, I mean, that's... Director's cut ending. Yes. Oh, my God. Robert released the Aldrich cut. Um, (laughs) that's the movie. It's very good. Highly recommend, um, if you're in for it. It's fucking long. It's like two hours and 15 minutes, and we just went through all of the plot, and there's not that much more than that. I think it moves. I didn't think it was that long. No comment. Honestly, I I think it drags a little. I I think it could be a little tighter. I had... 
Counterpoint, I had a great time and think that it's fine. I was a little <laughs> bored in the middle. But wow. that happens to me with most movies, as you know. I like I like my movies to move. The na- 90 minutes is the sexiest runtime, bar none. But, you know, plot great super good good movie recommend it <laughs> you just said like soup you baby jane to this plot and you're like i'm just gonna shove you to the side up yeah. in the cage. <laughs> we have we have like literally so much more that we have to talk about besides yeah the plot jordan guess what it is it's oscar time okay great thank fucking god okay <laughs> so i think it's important to discuss sort of what the other contenders at the time were and then get into what jones like actions were Mm -hmm. feud really helped us with this feud betty and donor helped me specifically i this feud didn't even give me anything for this this was just me oh this was all independent i already knew this oscar year before but it was like the feud helped me be like oh joan was really like the worst person because on our on our all about eve episode we were like wait a goddamn minute this was the same year as sunset boulevard what the fuck like what a stacked year but i feel like yes this year is uh your so your best picture doms are lawrence of arabia music man mutiny on the bounty and to kill a mockingbird literally all bangers of movies. You have David yep. Lean winning for director, obviously, and Gregor Gregory Peck winning for actor over Peter O'Toole, which is like understandable. Of course, he won. iconic performance, right? Yeah, please. Um, and then you get down to the women, and this is where it's kind of insane. So this movie was nommed for best actress with Betty, supporting actor for Victor Bruno, which is. Good for him. Good for him. Get that nom. He deserves. Best Cine Black and White and Best Sound. Best Cine Black and White also started in 1939 with Color, went away with 1967. But I just think it's so fascinating that it was divided into two categories of like Color and Not. And then when they lumped them together, literally only two black and white movies have won since then with Roma and uh, Schindler. But like, I don't know. I liked that they were sort of separate categories. I think that's fun because I love black and white movies. Anyways. I think it would lead if it was still separate categories. I think we would see a lot more modern. Oh, for sure. Black and white. Absolutely. Because you would see those in each category that you could win in and you would start making your films based on that. Exactly. 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 And there has been like obviously some contenders like Cold War or The Artist or like is Mank nominated this year? Maybe. Um, I don't remember. But like stuff like that. But like I feel like also if it was okay, Jordan, just think about the fact that if if it was still a niche category, do you know what would be nominated in the year 2021? Malcolm and Marie. Oh, no. No question. Um, so just think, Taking think about it off that. The ba- I just love when the Oscars had like these subcategories, like when they had for the best original song, they introduced a new category to stop Disney from essentially sweeping. Oh, wow. Like Interesting. in the 90s and stuff like that. So it's just like these fun little things that they would do to try to like fix you know, the way that the industry was going, but it doesn't really stop it because you can't stop a moving train. Yeah. And then on the flip side, you have bullshit, like popular film Oscar. Right. And no stunt Oscar. Yeah. Anyways. So this is rolling his eyes. Yes. We need a stunt Oscar. It's really just not that complicated. Okay. No. Jordan, take it away. Well, so basically what happened is obviously this is just a lot of rumor on the back end. Like not a lot of this is actual concrete other than what we saw on stage. But apparently Joan Crawford went to all the elite actresses and she told them because a lot of them were East Coast, New York based, like, hey, look, like, I'm sorry that like the Oscars are happening now. Like you have other stuff going on. I would be so honored and like can totally like alleviate the stress from you to accept your best actress nomination or award if you should get it. Like I can go up for you and went out to all of them and all of them were like, okay, 
like, sure. Like, I guess that's fine. I mean, and that wasn't a strange practice at the time. You had a lot of people working in both theater and film. And Betty right. Davis herself went and Started. accepted an Oscar for someone else on their behalf. So it wasn't right. totally crazy at the time. No, right? no, no. But to do it for oh, this movie specifically, Betty. exactly. So it feels oh, very sure. vindictive. And then also to be presenting Best Director, which is essentially right before at the time. And so, I mean, like what happens is that going out to everybody, uh, obviously Betty Davis loses. And for uh, to Anne Bancroft, for as we said, Joan Crawford gets to go up. And Joan Crawford gets to accept the award, gives a little speech on her behalf. Well, Betty Davis just has to stand there and watch and does not get her third Oscar, and Joan gets to give the speech, and basically, again, steals the fucking limelight from Betty, and all of this was because she was mad at Betty for having the lead actress nomination over her because she was not nominated. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's yeah. just hard to not see that Joan was being very petty. You can be like, sure, maybe she was just being nice to like offer to accept the award for people, but it's, hmm... I don't think that it's all that. I think she was obviously being very petty, but here's, here I think is the difference is that like, I honestly think that this is so funny and like, Oh, oh it's hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. And also dare I say pretty iconic. Oh, of course. Cause like, I completely agree. I'm not. I'm who I. I can't say who is on the right side of history, but the absolute uh, not Joan Crawford insane. Well, that's what I'm saying. The absolute insane like result that led to Joan Crawford being in a winner's photo with right. Gregory Peck at all for like this win. Like it looked like she won the Oscar to everyone. Right. All of the publicity. It's just her and her horrible silver outfit, which I think is so ugly. Um, Travis, where do you stand on this whole business? So I think, I mean, I'm very influenced by um, that Be Kind Rewind video I had watched, although I have done other research. I My personal take is I don't think it was a direct dig at Betty. Um, I think it was more... I will get the spotlight and I will capitalize on this film that I worked so hard for and I will keep myself relevant at any cost, including the cost being Betty. Um, Which is almost kind of worse that it wasn't like a personal grudge. It was, sorry, kid, I'm going to take my spotlight. Yeah. To hell with you. And uh, I kind of love that, that she was, it's not that she was directly attacking Betty, but she was more than fine with bulldozing her out of either the way, way it's happen. petty regardless yeah. of her Completely. you know what i mean um yeah. yeah and like i it's from from a sort of like producer perspective though because joan wasn't a producer on this movie but like she's the one that did the legwork to find the book that whatever happened to baby jane was based on she's the one that set it up she's the one that like walked it into warners and was like hello this needs to happen and she's the one that got betty davis on board so like Mm -hmm. it's she had a huge hand in this movie and i totally understand her being like no 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 this is my fucking thing and like i don't want to be completely ignored when it's like being lauded for oscars that are not mine yeah absolutely i feel like aldris also though gets skipped over because he had a huge part in that but he like gets even worse of all of them like he doesn't get any he's just not even part of it right like this movie only wins best costume like he doesn't even get anything 
You know, like he's the one who's just like shunted from everything. Totally snubbed for best director. Um, but like we said, this was and look, the same fucking thing is happening today. This was a genre movie. It didn't get like the prestige awards. Right. It has the horror tag and people exactly. are immediately like, oh, this isn't a serious thing. We don't have to take this seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe we'll we'll reward some good performances, but we're not going to actually treat this like it's a serious picture. Right. Um, here is the crazy critical versus commercial aspect of it all though this movie absolutely fucking killed at the box office it made like 10 times its budget back or something right yeah because it was a total shoestring budget the studio did not want to shell out anything for it and wouldn't even shell out for reshoots when they had to happen and was like we don't really care how this gets made or if it's good just go ahead and do it and then as soon as the dailies started coming in and they were like you know actually good um this was like considered to be like the widest release at the time um it was like 400 plus screens which was insane um Mm -hmm. and it was very popular with like young people with the youth it was kind of like you know people going to see like a a blumhouse film now that like you know opens number one opening again because it's a bunch of teenagers that want to go be scared like that was essentially what this was genre piece people like seeing horror like sorry that makes money it made mad bank which is honestly awesome and like we said it launched this whole other genre um that was extremely popular like in the late 60s i mean it gives aldrich a blank check to finally actually get to do what he wants to do and so his follow-up is something that is not good. And so, like, he recognizes that. So then they do Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which then ultimately, you know, leads to more drama between Betty and Joan, of course, because it is yeah. essentially, like, a sequel to this movie where Betty, though, on this one, goes for the producer side of it. And ultimately, like, the headbutting on that movie leads to Joan feigning illness going to a hospital and then being kicked off the set by the studio because they're like you either go to set or you're being replaced yeah Yeah. and she said oh I'm sick cough cough and And they they said oh you're fired yeah (laughs) yeah yeah god it's just like it's crazy and like we said the feud continued like literally until the end of their lives um we could spend an additional three hours talking about like all the little bits and pieces of like how these women interacted throughout their lives and how much of it was fabricated. There were like autobiographies or biographies by both of their children about the respective mothers and like how that played into it. Um, but we only have so much time. But did her daughter call her fat in the biography? That's what I need to know. Oh, <laughs> we'll have, have to, to check read it out. Mommy dearest to find out. That's the Joan Crawford one. <laughs> yeah. Weird. Oh, sorry. The other one is... Um, I actually don't know what the other one is called, uh, but it's the one that Betty Davis's daughter, who's yeah. in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, yes. wrote about her. I mean, God, there's so much. The legacy of this movie lives on. As we said, like even genre, it's like constantly riffed on by shows. Like if you just like go through what this movie has impacted, like The Simpsons, Little House on the Prairie was impacted by this movie. There's a whole Batman, the animated series one. Like the minute I started watching this and like I read that, I put two and two together. There's a whole episode that like riffs on a baby doll of a former child actor going insane. Like there's just so much that this movie's Mm -hmm. cultural touch, as we said, like with the like drag race, Mm -hmm. everything. It's just like constantly has its fingertips on something, which I think is really, really cool. Yeah. 
I want to give a quick shout out to, as we've mentioned, Feud, Betty and Joan, which is Ryan Murphy's television series about all the behind the scenes drama and basically starts with the production of Baby Jane and goes until the end of the actress's life, including like the Oscars and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and all of that business. It is an extremely good series and possibly the best thing that Ryan Murphy Absolutely has ever done. Absolutely the best thing he's done. It is like legitimately very good. And I think that Ryan Murphy's like best, you know, we, you know, as we said, we just talked about the prom a couple of weeks ago and like, we were not super kind <laughs> to that movie <laughs> or to Ryan Murphy, but I feel like feud and outliers like American crime story really represent what he's good at, which is like taking these underserved, like accurate historical stories and like retelling them in a way that has some flash and obviously has some like Ryan Murphy isms to them but Mm -hmm. like for the most part being able to tell them accurately and like really shine a light on what was going on like feud is all about how sexism in Hollywood was a huge like reason for the feud between these two women and how like they were extremely talented in their own rights and like like baby jane says all this time they could have been friends yeah it's a really great series it stars susan sarandon as betty davis and uh jessica lang as joan crawford in absolutely fucking impeccable casting impeccable casting and alfred molina as robert aldrich your boy jordan yes yeah. It's very good. Yeah, it's really good. I highly recommend it. And Susan's I think that, incredible in it. I think she. I, gets, I've seen literally one scene from it. That's it. I, I've seen the scene where she goes and talks to Anne Bancroft because I know the actress who plays Anne Bancroft in that, and I had to go. Oh my god! Oh my god! Well, she's amazing, yeah. and she's so also she's, she's fantastic. So stunning. She's yeah. Yes. I mean, Anne Bancroft. Yeah. This is Mrs. Robinson herself. Jordan. <laughs> what? <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing. I mean, she literally is, she plays Mrs. Robinson. She does. So what? Like, she does. What? <laughs> what did I say? Nothing, nothing. Um, yeah, no, I just think it's a really great show. Uh, also, Stanley Tucci is Jack Warner and yeah. like delivers constant zingers as a terrible studio head. I think it's a fantastic show. I really, it's really. Stanley Tucci. He never not delivers. Oh, right, yes. of course. There is nothing more upsetting, though, than seeing Stanley Tucci call someone a bitch. I was like, oh, he would never. Yeah. He would never. <laughs> like, he's such a horrible, he plays like such a horrible person and like he absolutely nails it. But I was like, oh my God, Stanley. Like, I feel like I need to go watch Julie and Julia to like, cleanse myself yes but no i really yeah i also highly recommend it and i think that like this is a great pocket in which ryan murphy should work the production design is lush the casting is amazing the like dialogue and like all the behind the scenes drama is like recounted so well and like ryan murphy knows so much about like old hollywood and like you know has talked so much about like queer history and elements of like you know this diva drama like he is really good about like present day giving you know roles like amazing meaty roles to these actresses that are quote-unquote aging out that's very true yeah yeah as well as like spotlighting like you know actual queer actors and stuff like that like he is he does do like a lot of good and I think that feud was a great example of like how he is doing good in a in a piece that is also like you know a quality television program yeah it's great limited, yeah take give it a look that's my recommendation of the week jordan anything else that you want to mention about this crazy 
crazy business. I think you you covered it. Jessica Lang played uh, one of the sisters on Grey Gardens, which I think was fascinating that she went on from that to then do Feud, oh, which yeah. is essentially like same vibes from it. Yeah. I don't know. I think you kind of covered it all. I think it's just a great like examination of aging and like talent in Hollywood and like Alfred Molina's character sort of being shunted to the side and like being told he's like not talented and just like how we all compare ourselves to one another and like how dangerous that could be for, you know, talent or whatnot. Uh, And it made me really sad and emotional at the end. So yeah, I would definitely recommend it as well. Yes. Killer ending too. Travis, do you have any final thoughts on whatever happened to baby Jane? What happened to her? Whatever happened to her, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's uh, an enduring queer classic um, because of these wonderful divas who we love so much. And I don't really know that I have any special thoughts that we haven't already covered. Like, it's just, it's great. Go watch it. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it. Yeah. Davis is a goddamn icon. (laughs) Literally the greatest of all time. Just came to eat. Oh my God. And eat she did. Recommendations all around. All right. It's time for our favorite game. Jordan. Oh boy. Would you like to guess the letterboxed rating? I shall. For whatever Uh, happened to baby Jane and Travis, Travis. You can hop in as well if you have a guess. I'm going to say that it's probably higher just because I think it's considered a classic. So I'm going to give it like a three, nine, I'll say three, nine. I'll lock in. I also think that um, it would be high, but also even higher because I feel like there's this kind of bias when it comes to classic movies of, of the older films. No one remembers anything. They don't really like all that much or that wasn't really all that great. So I feel like this is going to stick in a little more. So I'm going to say four, one. Travis, you're correct. It's a 4-1. Well done. (laughs) Amazing. Good job. Yes, I totally agree with you. I think that like, you know, disproportionately, if you were going to look at the highest rated decades on Letterboxd, the 50s and the 60s would be so much higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because everyone only likes to watch the classics. Right, you're not going to go back and watch something that you didn't want to watch, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why Because well, Hollywood you? doesn't preserve them. We're terrible about preserving films. Oh, shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's helpful, though, to try and figure out what we can cover because obviously we don't have, like, box office data for this old stuff. So it's good to yeah. go off of, like, what did people like? Right. <laughs> what, yeah. what endured? How did this um, actually gross. very helpful. Yes, exactly. Um, so that's that. Do you want to give our queer quadrant Let's ratings? Where are you putting it? Okay. I feel like... You know, usually I just try to judge based on the actual content of the film. But like the whole reason that we wanted to talk about this is like sort of the legacy that it's left behind. Um, So I think I'm going to give it three out of five stars on the QQ. Like, look, we have all the behind the scenes drama. We have like... I don't know everything that we've just hashed out. I feel like it's such a huge body of work and there's so much to talk about all wrapped up in this like little two hour thriller um, that to ignore it feels wrong in a way. And like we said, it has endured in this very like special and specific way. It is required reading like Travis said. Um, So I want to give it some extra points for that. I don't really have like a great thesis on it, uh, but there we go. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> uh, I'm going to, you know, I'll go a three as well. I Yeah, I'll go three as well. I think it is like, it's just ultimately just like a touchstone for 
queer cinema. It's constantly playing at rep theaters, constantly at festivals. It's just like something that is like always being talked about, parodied, as we've said, just the legacy that this movie has left, I think, and the impact that it has in the queer community is sort of impossible to overlook. I think having sort of Victor in there as like a queer actor helps. I think like a big part of like the gay community is like appropriating, or not appropriating, but like paying tribute to like the campiness of this movie and like sending it up. And I think that that, you know, is so important as like to Drag Race or just to whatever else it may be. This movie has left its linger on the world. So yeah, I'll give it a a three as well. Travis? It's, I feel like, I know that this is always a thing. So I had said at the start in my mind that I was going to do three, but the more that we talked about it today, I think I'm going to push that to like a 3.5. Yeah. Listening to you guys talk about it has made me appreciate it even more, honestly. So uh, I think I'm going to go with three, five. Love it. I love that. The yeah. melodrama. Just for melodrama. Uh, I always just have oh. to be one up you guys just a little bit. So that's, that's really what I'm doing. I love I it. I love it. it. You know, I, this could be, this could be the start of a beautiful feud. <laughs> oh my God. Rainbow road versus queer quadrant. I do yeah, have let's a, just duke it out. Let's <laughs> do yeah. it. I have a question for you as a video game podcast. What would the yes. uh, baby Jane video game be? Is it like a point and click or is it like a, a like a street fighter or is is it you know what how do you adapt baby jane for video games i'm gagged i'm gooped um (laughs) should have known coming in no i I didn't think about this at all okay so it is gonna be a life is strange slash walking dead adventure style game that's what i was gonna have too great where you get to make choices um about specifically how you torture Joan and oh my god that is twisted I thought it was gonna be from Joan's POV where it's like how do you escape the house with baby Jane as like the villain no 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 from baby Jane's POV because like you need to feel how horrible this is to do to a person and I I need you as a protagonist to be stuck in that uncomfortableness yes I like this this is radical that's fun this is I I fully support I was gonna have that but from you know, Jones POV, but now that we're here, I'm just going to go for like a injustice or street fighter style boxing game where you just have baby Jane (laughs) and like her special combo is using the doll and Blanche will use like the wheelchair. And there we go. Yeah. She can just give a nice big leg. Or she like throws birds at you, you know, something, (laughs) I don't know, something in there. I'd buy it. Would you call that a a cage match? (gasps) Yes. A lady in a cage match, perhaps. (laughs) Okay. No, you can't give me that look, Jordan, when all you do is puns. You can't give me that look just because I'm coming for your game. The look is jealousy. The look is... (laughs) uh, I overlooked it. It was sitting right in front of me like the police. And I just was like, where is this woman who killed her sister? I don't know where she is. Do you think it could be this lady with approximately five pounds of makeup on her face? No, probably not. That seems normal. Who's singing to herself? No. Spinning in And the circles. exact car that we're looking for wow. is sitting in the middle of the road. Right. Mm, what, what a, a winky dink. All right. Look, we sure figured out. We found <laughs> what out what happened, happened to her. I, like, I, I, I don't have anything better than that. But Travis, thank you so much for being here. This is a pleasure thank you for as having always. me. This is so much fun. I'm so glad. Is there anything that you would like to plug? Yes. Uh, so I'm the co-host of a podcast called Rainbow Road, we where we them. talk about queerness in video games. 
um, much like you guys talk about with Blockbuster Films. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at Rainbow Road Pod. Uh, and you can find the podcast itself at uh, any of your major podcatchers, um, Spotify, Apple, uh, anything like that. So yeah, please check us out. It's the best. And you guys have a great Twitter and it's equal parts informative and funny, which is everything that podcasting should be. Um, a delight. It's great. And we're big fans. And you can also find us on Twitter if you're so inclined. I'm at Brooke B. Solomon. Jordan H. Gus. Almost forgot my handle for a second. And we are together at Queer Quadrant. And you can find this podcast on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Help us to our Hollywood dreams. Don't leave us rotting away in an old mansion. Five stars. <laughs> and tweet at us and tell us what you think about this crazy feud and Ryan Murphy's feud and the film itself. And uh, I don't know, All just feuds. like how Hollywood is terrible in general. I, there's a lot to unpack so give us a shout let us know what you think hey jordan guess we're covering next week do you actually know i'll tell go, you go power rangers we are covering power Great. rangers next week we are uh going to morph go, i believe is the term queer quadrants oh hey pretty good um i mm -hmm. obviously know nothing about this film because i know nothing about film in general but we are covering 2017's power rangers with travis's lovely co-host Mike. We usually don't reveal who our yes. guest is, but like I feel like it would be weird not to. I was about to drop it anyways and ruin it for <laughs> yeah. you. It's also in the can already, so whoops. Yep. Oh, we recorded it first because we have no sense of time. Um, A secret to the podcast. Oh, no. You guys have like, pulled back the curtain. Yeah, seriously. Oh my like, god. We love to reveal our trade secrets. Call us Oz the Great and Powerful because we're, we're pulling, pulling back, back that the curtain. curtain. Jordan keeps petitioning that we should cover that film. Um, and I might have to give for, it a rewatch. when Wicked, when Wicked 2020 23 comes out or 2024 we're going to cover Oz the Grain Powerful I'm just saying that now <laughs> we'll see can't if, wait <laughs> if that makes it to the main feed you'll you should have you should know that there was a feud behind there the will scenes be a, about that <laughs> there will be like one week it's that and then it's one movie that Brooke loves that I probably abhor so I'll have to try it's, and a, it's the one. old guard episode too even though I don't even hate the old guard but we just cover the old guard again I would love that I have more to say <laughs> great much more. And as always, guys, you know, I've written a letter to Daddy saying I love you. That was it? How was that? Oh, okay. Hey. Yeah, I'm not doing the whole thing. Well, you know, don't, I Don't bait that. him. Don't give him more. 